Welcome to Sunday Sermons from the Williamsburg Community Chapel, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 4, verses 1 through 30, and I'll read verses 13 through 15 for us now, as we prepare to hear from Claude Marshall to finish out our little series where we've been fixing our eyes on Jesus the Evangelist. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. When Jesus started his earthly ministry, Mark chapter one, verse 15 tells us, or summarizes at least, what his evangelistic message was. It says it this way. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So last week, as Rich Sylvester opened up John chapter 3, we saw Jesus encountering a very righteous thinking man, a real rule keeper, a Pharisee, a leader of the Jews, and attempted to explain to him why he needed more than renovation in his life. He really did need to be born again. This week in John chapter 4, As Kara has just read, we see Jesus encountering a woman at a well, someone who's not quite so much a rule keeper, someone who's not a leader in her land, someone who is an outcast. Maybe as much as Nicodemus was religious, this woman at the well is irreligious. She is notorious, in fact, and we'll see why in a minute. The conversation he initiates is fascinating, it's dramatic, it's really one of my favorite passages in the Gospel of John. It's a beautiful encounter that Jesus has with this woman. Some context then, so we can understand what is being said. Jesus is in the south in Judea. He feels the need to go back to to Galilee where he had been preaching. It's about a 70, 75 mile walk. It'll take three to four days. It's hot, it's dusty. He has to go to south to north But in between those is this place called Samaria. You can see it on the map. Now, most people, if they were Jewish and were traveling from Judea to Galilee, they did not go through Samaria. They went around it. But it's interesting in John chapter 4, verse 4, that John simply says, and he had to pass through Samaria. And we'd have to ask, well, why? Why did he have to pass through Samaria? Nobody else did. If you were a respected rabbi, you certainly would not be caught in Samaria. There's a reason why. The the conflict, the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans had been going on for years. This wasn't new. They didn't get along well. That's a mild way to put it. They, They hated each other. The Jews particularly hated the Samaritans. They thought of them as kind of religious misfits, cultural outcasts. These people that had been brought in to populate a part of Palestine, we call it Samaria, that had been a place where the Jews who had lived there were exiled to another land. And in their place, these foreigners were brought in. Now over the centuries, the Samaritans, as they became known, adopted much of what we think of as Judaic religion. But not all of it. They had a kind of a hybrid version, a syncretistic version of the Jewish faith. 
So there was a rivalry between the Jews and the Samaritans that went way back. This is real culture war here. They know how to do this. They've been doing it for years. They despised each other. One interesting component of the Samaritan faith that plays into our story today, as John tells us, is that the Samaritans had a Bible, but it wasn't the Jewish Bible. They only used part of it. They believed that the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, what we think of as that original first five books, certainly written by Moses, that that was the only scripture that was authoritative. The historical books, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the prophets, they didn't buy any of those. They didn't believe they were scriptural. They didn't read them. Didn't have them in their Bibles. They had a much shorter Bible than the Jews did. The other thing that distinguished Samaritan faith from Jewish faith was that they believed that God wanted worship, but that he wanted it on Mount Gerizim, which was in Samaria. That that was the place that God wanted to be worshipped. Not in Jerusalem. Not in Mount Zion. They thought of Mount Zion as a trash dump. They thought Mount Gerizim had much more historical significance and that that's where God would want to be worshipped. Well, there are good reasons, as I mentioned, that the Jews and Samaritans didn't get along well. One of those reasons is about a hundred and so years before this time when Jesus shows up, the Jews had attacked Samaria and had gone to Mount Gerizim and burned their temple down. That doesn't make you real popular. It's like if the Baptists had gone next door to the Methodists and said, we disagree with you and burned their church down. That's not very good, is it? But that's what they did. And so this, this animosity was severe. Jesus and his disciples are walking along, probably from Jerusalem, going up to Galilee. They decide to go straight through Samaria. It's hot. It's tired. They've had a long morning walk. It's about noon, the sixth hour, noon of the day. So John says that Jesus is weary. Interesting, isn't it, that John doesn't shy away from pointing out that Jesus, in his humanity, had experiences like we do. He got tired. He was thirsty. He was hungry. So he stops. He and the disciples, he stops and sits at a well. The disciples, they go on into town to try to find some Samaritan fast food and bring it back to her. It's about that time that a woman shows up. It's a woman that, um, well, it's not the, the kind of woman that you normally would hang out with. It's a woman who, of course, it's not uncommon for her to show up to collect water because that's what women did in Palestine, first century. Collecting water from the well was women's work. But she comes at an odd time, the middle of the day, right at noon, the heat of the day. Most women collecting water would have come at right after sunrise or even before, and then at dusk when it was much cooler. It's pretty obvious that she's coming at a time when she didn't want to be seen or met or encountered by other women who come to the water at, at, at the well. She lives on the margins of society. She doesn't want to come and, and hear what she would hear if she came when the other women were there. The gossip of what they would say about her, the sneers that they would give her way, the pointed fingers. Oh, there she is. So she shows up at noon. But there's a man at the well. Her intention, of course, would simply be to ignore him and to draw her water out and go back to town on her own. And that's where Jesus begins his encounter with the woman at the well. And it's interesting because he starts it with committing a pretty serious social faux pas. Jesus speaks to her. 
Now, in that culture, Palestinian culture, Jewish or Samaritan, first century, even today, men rarely, if ever, speak to women in public. A man would not even speak to his wife or his daughter in public. A single man would never think about addressing a woman in public. But Jesus simply says, give me a drink. And her response, not surprising, is, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? We might paraphrase that by what she was thinking. Why are you talking to me? She didn't expect that at all. And yet he does talk to her, and he asks her for something. And there the conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well becomes dramatic and delightful. And he uses common, everyday things to to bring spiritual reality into her life. He talks about water. He talks about husbands. He talks about religion. But when he does so, he presses in to show more of his own heart to this woman. You know, Jesus, as an evangelist, it's interesting, doesn't pull out a gospel tract out of his cloak. He doesn't share four spiritual laws with her. He doesn't draw three circles. He doesn't draw a bridge illustration. He doesn't use any of the tools that we tend to use when we try to share our faith with someone who doesn't know about Jesus. We need tools to help us make the gospel clearer at times. Jesus didn't need a tool as an evangelist. Jesus can share the gospel easily because Jesus is the gospel. All he needs to do is share his very own life. And so he reveals his heart to her when he responds to her statement, why are you asking me for water? Jesus says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And just like Nicodemus, a chapter before, who didn't understand what Jesus meant when he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. This woman at a well doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about when he says, I would give you living water. Now, the promise is there. We read part of that this morning Places like Isaiah 55 that unpack the wonderful promise of living water, of water that refreshes our souls, of water that that God will give us, even without cost, that shows his compassion for us, that brings us joy and forgiveness and assurance. But remember, the Samaritans didn't read Isaiah. It wasn't part of their Bible. And not that this woman actually read the scripture or even went to a place necessarily to have it read. But she didn't know about Isaiah, chapter 55. But the biggest reason she didn't get it, so to speak, is that spiritual truths on a woman who doesn't know anything about God in Christ, she's not able to discern what he's talking about. The woman can't recognize. She's dead in her trespasses and sins. She needs to be brought alive. Jesus is there offering living water to her, but she doesn't know what it means. So she wonders where it's going to come from. And she says so. How are you going to give me living water? This woman knows the territory. That's where she's from. She knows where every well and every stream, anywhere near the town of Sychar is. She knows that this well is the only place nearby to get water. And the word that Jesus uses for living water is 
often a word that indicates running water, clear water, pure water. She knows there's no stream that's like that nearby. Sir, where are you going to get this living water? It doesn't quite make sense to her. She doesn't get it. She'd love to have some. It would be wonderful, she thinks. He says it would satisfy my thirst. I wouldn't have to draw water here. I wouldn't have to come back to the well. Experience the embarrassment, the shame that I get every time I come and there's other women from the town here. Yes, give me some of this water. I would love it. But Jesus isn't done yet in his conversation with this woman. He stops talking about water and he simply says to her, go get your husband and come back. Now put yourself in the the shoes of that woman. She knows that she doesn't have a current husband. She's had five men who were husbands, so to speak. She knows that the one she's living with now is not her husband. She's notorious in town because of that. We have words for women like this. We don't know if she was having on her sixth man or sixth husband because the other men had died. It doesn't seem to indicate that. Or even if somehow, by chance, she had been able to divorce five men in a row. In that culture, very unlikely that a woman could be allowed to do that. We know the kind of woman it is, she is. Jesus knows exactly the kind of woman she is. But have you noticed that in the gospel accounts of Jesus going around people, that he seems to be drawn to people just like this woman? the morally impure, the social outcast, the diseased, those whose sin is most blatant and unforgivable and inexcusable, those who are most undeserving, those are the ones that Jesus is drawn to. I guess there really is a reason why his enemies said of him, this man is a friend of sinners, because he really was. He gravitates toward sinners instead of being repelled by sinners. So up until now, this woman did not think of Jesus as particularly extraordinary in any way. She knows that he's a man, of course. She gets right away that he's a Jew. Maybe it was his accent that gave him away, but she understands that he's not from around these parts, as we would say. But now she begins to think differently about him because He says to her, you are right in saying that you have no husband. In fact, you've had five of them, and the one you have now, he's not your husband. And she thinks, there's no possible way Jesus should know this. How could he? He's not from around here. I've never seen him. He doesn't know me. And it gets in her head, this Jesus, whoever this is, he doesn't give her his name, this man, this Jewish man, that, that I've called sir because it seems to be a, a title of respect. That she did respect him, but now he must be a prophet. He gets words from God. And so she says so, verse 20. She speaks words that begin to indicate she's getting something. The woman said to him in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So Jesus has had a conversation so far with this woman by bringing up water, simply asking for some, turning it to living water, bringing us husbands, 
asking her to get hers, and in reality, she doesn't have a husband, so to speak, right now. So she deflects the conversation, or tries to. She's the one who brings up religion. You know, our fathers say that we should worship here, but you Jews, you, you think you need to worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus accepts the deflection and runs right down the road with it and says some amazing things about what real worship is. The main thing he says, though, is that there's coming a time when place simply doesn't matter. The, the, the worship that you're talking about, it's not going to matter if you're at Mount Gerizim or if you're at Mount Zion in Jerusalem. That's not the point. We Jews, we know where salvation comes from. The point is that you worship God in spirit and in truth. Or, as it may be said most clearly, you worship God in the spirit of truth. You need the Holy Spirit to worship God, Jesus is saying. That's what's important. It's not location. It's what's going to happen in your heart. Well, she doesn't quite get it yet. Not yet. She doesn't understand it quite yet. And remember, she's only dealing with what maybe she had heard from the first five books of the Bible, and but not probably real familiar with even those. She's almost like an unchurched person that we might live near. But, but she did know something, and she probably believed it, because she refers to Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, which says these words, when God was speaking to Moses, I will raise up for them, for the people, a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This woman had at least an inkling of what that meant, because she says, I know the Messiah is coming, verse 25. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So she's got a hankering here that I know something, and I don't know how to connect the dots yet, but I know that there's someone coming who can tell us all things, and this man who's at the well in front of me, he's telling me a lot of things. Jesus spells it out for her as clear as day in a statement that is one of the clearest revelations of who he is. Because he says in verse 26, I am, or I who speak to you, am he. Or literally, in the, if we translated it literally, he puts it like this. I who speaks to you, I am. And those words, I am kind of code words from the book of Exodus. When God was asked his name, he said, tell the people my name is I am. I am who I say I am. I am who I will be. Jesus says right here, I who speaks to you, I am. Jesus has just shared the gospel with a woman at a well in Samaria. And it's an amazing thing because he has just shared himself. He is the gospel. Well, it's at this point, as we've seen, that the disciples return, having bought some bread at McDonald's and Sychar. And they show up just at this point, it seems, and the woman probably looked up and saw these, these 12 guys headed away, and she's probably thinking, it's time for me to skadoodle out of here. And so she leaves to go back into town, and even leaves her, her bucket and whatever she was using to gather water with right at the well. And when she goes into town, an amazing thing happens there as, as well. Because she goes into town and she says to those she encounters, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now that invitation is not just an invitation to a circus sideshow act. 
where there'd be someone standing in a booth guessing your, your age or your weight or your height. This is an invitation much greater than that because she follows that up with a question as she's sharing. Can this be Messiah? Can this be the Christ? And so the woman at the well has herself become the evangelist. And she begins to go around the town inviting people to come out and see this man who told her all that she ever did. Could it be the Christ? And further in this chapter of John, we see that indeed they do come out. Much of the city, they even say in verse 42, it is no longer, they say to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that is indeed, this is indeed the Savior of the world. So let me get back to the question I asked earlier. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Again, nobody else did. A good Jew would take an extra day of walking just to go around it. Why did he have to go through it? And the question that the woman asks him, where do you get this living water? So don't miss what's happening here in this story. The heart of God is clearly, most clearly demonstrated perhaps in the heart of Jesus. And Jesus' heart is for sinners. The reason he had to go through Samaria was that there were people there who hadn't heard the gospel, who hadn't encountered him. What is happening is well described, I think, by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, when he says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Look at just the first part of that. Consider these words. First part of Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy. Pastor and author Dane Ortland has pointed out that nowhere else in the Bible is God described as being rich in anything. The only thing the Bible describes God as being rich in, with those words, is mercy. Which probably means that God is different than the way we tend to think about him. Because sometimes our thoughts about God are that, oh, he is, he is great in wisdom, he's mighty in power, he's exacting in his judgments. But how often do you think of God God as being rich in mercy, rich, abundant, overflowing, never running out. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Because there would be a woman at a well at noon on a hot day, a woman who was a social and religious outcast, a notorious sinner, and Jesus, who is God in the flesh, is so rich in mercy that he simply has to show up there. He has to encounter her because there is a child of Adam lost in her trespasses and sins who needs to find living water to satisfy her parched soul. And there's a whole culture of people who the Jews will ignore, but Jesus won't, who need to hear good news the gospel, 
of the living water of Jesus Christ. So how about you, as I close? Is there anything keeping you from drinking deeply the living water that Jesus offers? Is there anything that keeps you from drinking all the life that Jesus brings? Well, maybe you look around and you think, well, I'm the least deserving person to receive anything from Jesus. I'm perhaps been a failure one too many times, that maybe God is, is kind of done with me, that I can't really expect that he would forgive me once again for a sin I've been trapped in for a good part of my life. Or maybe there's just the shame of feeling that I messed up, I didn't do what God wanted me to do, I could have gone down the right path at one point and I didn't, or I made mistakes that seemed so hard for me to forgive, or something has happened to you that you just wonder, you doubt whether God is trustworthy. Well, let me tell you, you need to rethink your view. God is rich in mercy. Jesus demonstrated that at a well in Samaria. And Jesus will meet you there, even at the lowest point, at the point of sin. Because you see, when you're in Christ particularly, your sin doesn't repel Christ. It doesn't send Jesus packing. Even your sin draws him near. It draws, you clo- draws him closer to you so that he can bring you again living water. It's his heart to do so. He is rich in mercy. So as we come to communion, to celebrate all that Jesus has done for us at the cross, to remember his death again, the gospel itself, be reminded that the heart of Christ is rich in mercy for sinners like us. Thank you for joining us today. Here at the Williamsburg Community Chapel, our mission is to make disciples of Jesus by meeting people wherever they are spiritually and physically. If you'd like to learn more or connect with us, follow us on social media at WCChapel757 or visit our website, wcchapel.org. Have a blessed day.